All right. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to have some ZZ lead us in. Nothing wrong with the, the little old band from Texas. Uh, those guys have been a soundtrack to my life. Uh, it seems like that was one of the first cassette tapes I ever remember buying when I was a kid. I got a Walkman for, I don't know, like my sixth, not sixth, um, like my 12th birthday. So it would be like sixth grade was what I was thinking. Um and I remember buying a Eliminator. Um, that was a man. That was a big deal uh, back then. You know, you got if you got a Walkman and a a real Walkman, Sony. You know, um, <clears throat> and you had some you had some tapes to play in it. And I played a little bit of everything because my music tastes go all over the place. I listen to everything from <clears throat> you know swing music to to modern pop, um, a lot of old country, a lot of old rap, a lot of eighties music, obviously. Um, so yeah, that makes you think, um, <clears throat> how far we've come technology wise. Now everything's, you know, it's all Bluetooth. In fact, the last couple of, last couple of, uh, stereo installs I've done in my own cars have been either isolated Bluetooth amps, uh, where, uh, this is a good, a good tip for some of you hot rod guys or guys that are building custom cars out there. Um, I do a lot of big body cars, um, me and Lincoln's Imperials. Cadillacs, whatnot. Uh, those cars aren't always the most friendly when it comes to radio installs. If you're trying to put an aftermarket head unit in one of those, because the dashes are not consistent, um, they're not all they're not all shaft mounts um, that are equal equal distant uh, shafts, um, and they are sometimes don't have just they just have push buttons, um, and then you know sometimes the dash pieces are sectioned off where it's just not gonna it won't fit. A conventional single den head unit so in those cases um it's probably better honestly i think it is if you want to maintain the stock look of the dash uh, just to run a, a bluetooth uh, amp in the car and then just you're powering the speakers up which you'd have to hide the speakers of course uh, but you're powering them up off the off the amplifier only and there's no head unit so you're playing everything through your phone or you know whatever your device is you have in your car anyway so um that stuff works really, really well, and it also maintains the look, the factory look, or the integrity of some of the older cars that we don't really just have the options um, as far as you know aftermarket head units in. But that being said, uh, most everybody listens to their phones now anyway, or you know, like a podcast, or um, they listen to Spotify or Pandora or any one of the streaming services that are out there. Or people still record their own stuff. I guess they still do MP3 files like you've got an old iPod or gosh, I had Rhapsody for a while on a little Sony uh, MP3 player. Um, so all that stuff's you know ever changing technology, just like laptops and whatnot. I don't even think people use desktops anymore unless you're it's business related. But um, certainly, you know, the laptop game is you know, never ending, never and and ever changing. It's very amoebic in nature. But, uh, yeah, so now, you know, we've got any music at our fingertips, anything you want. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, wearing a cassette out or popping a tape, um, you know, or scratching a CD or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't, I've given up all my CDs. I've still got a pretty good CD collection, but uh, that's kind of like DVD players now and even Blu-rays and 4K stuff. You know, that's kind of going by the wayside with all these streaming services uh, that are out there now. And I have to admit, I, I use streaming at the house all the time. Uh, YouTube TV for my regular stuff, um, a lot of YouTube videos um, that, you know, just there's 
why watch an hour of something with all the commercials and stuff in it when you can watch the the condensed format or the condensed version of it um and then of course you know netflix and hulu and voodoo and whatever else is out there i I do watch a lot of netflix in fact i just finished up ozark tonight which was wow that was crazy if you guys are looking for something to watch and you're wanting to binge something it's three seasons worth so like 30 episodes took me like three or four days to get through all of them but uh definitely good work um if you're into that um i would highly recommend ozark as a as a series to pick up and and uh work your way through i finished peaky blinders a couple of weeks ago, but that took a lot longer because it was like five seasons. So um, the quarantine has lended itself to, and so much rain that we've had in Texas anyway, has lended itself to a lot of TV time. But uh, above and all that, above and beyond all that, I should say, um, have been trying to gear up and uh, get some car work going. Man, it's been so slow, so dead uh, because of all the nonsense going on. And I find myself doing a lot more troubleshooting over the phone and text messages and emails and whatnot for people. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, you know, my background necessarily, I think probably anyone that's, uh, stumbled across this off my Facebook page, that's a friend of mine knows that, you know, I've been doing the car thing forever. Uh, I started working on cars when I was about 13. Um, you know, I was infatuated with them. Uh, that was just the coolest thing to me. And of course, that all started off with Hot Wheels as a, as a little kid. But um, graduated into the real thing. Um, bought uh, first car when I was about 13, 14 with a friend of mine. We split it, uh, bought it out of a junkyard, got it running, wound up selling it. And then that turned into my car flipping profile that has never stopped. I've, I've had thousands of cars uh, since I was you know, 14, 15 years old, literally. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I think I had five cars that I rotated between and, uh, I had to work my ass off for all of them. So don't, don't, don't take that the wrong way. Uh, the deal my parents struck with me was that, you know, if I bought my cars that they would give me a <clears throat> gas card and put insurance on the cars. So I had to pay for all the cars and, and, you know, I would buy one, fix it up, flip it, buy another one or buy two or trade or whatever. And that's how I, that's how I got to where I am now. Um, grew up a Ford guy, uh, always into Mustangs and Fairlanes and, and uh, Galaxies and whatnot. Those were kind of my, my go-tos, Torinos, uh, pickups, you know. Uh, but, you know, as I got older, I branched out, had a, had a, uh, have a respect for anything that's fast, certainly. Uh, I spent a, a large portion of my early years uh, in the game uh, building race cars, um, drag cars, some, you know, road course stuff, um, anything fast really didn't matter what it was um i've built cars that have done anything and everything you can think of um you know world's fastest street car shootout stuff uh, you know standing mile stuff standing half mile stuff you know a lot of the stuff i've uh, a lot of the cars i've put together are comparatively now are slow because in the last 10 years man things have ramped up to a, a crazy degree uh, got some friends of mine i'll try to get on uh, the podcast with me that'll I'll, uh, tell you kind of the state of the union for for that that level of racing now because they're they're still involved in it. Um, man, there's you know standing mile records over 300 miles an hour. If you think about that, you know a car goes from a, uh, a stop to you know 300 miles an hour in a mile. Uh, I mean it's a measured distance race. Um, insane to think that you know we're we're at that point now. Um, probably the last car I, I built that 
took a shot at something like that, you know, the car tickled 200 miles an hour. And so, you know, you're talking about a hundred miles an hour difference, which is nothing to sneeze at. That's a hell of a lot of power and uh, a lot of power put down uh, in that case. But anyway, um, you know, did, uh, I've done every kind of car, car work you can think of from, you know, started off doing dealership stuff when I was in college and, and, uh, then, you know, branched out and I've always been an engine guy. That's always been really, you know, kind of, kind of how I grew up. You know, my dad was a machinist, grew up in a machine shop environment, uh, built all my own engines, uh, went to a school, uh, in Houston after I got out of college and furthered that education. Also went back there and taught for a while, uh, at that school. Uh, I was really fortunate to do that. Got a lot of good friends, uh, that are, um, that I taught with or went to school with or taught really that are still in the game guys working in every, every motorsport field you can think of from NASCAR to HRA to, you know, having their own shops, building their own engines, doing their own tuning work. Um, and then I gravitated towards the tuning side of it because I was always a drivability tech, uh, in the, you know, when I was working dealership stuff. So fuel injection doesn't scare me. Programming doesn't scare me. Um, you know, the, the, the hows and whys, how the sensors work, how the, uh, you know, how we make power, all that stuff is kind of second nature for me. So, um, as opposed to doing, you know, brake jobs and, and changing shocks on cars, I was more, you know, concerned about the electronics and, and the hows and whys to, to make the, the, the engine run correctly and to make more power. Obviously that was kind of the end game. So last few years of transition into custom cars and, and hot rod stuff, a lot of swaps do a lot of, uh, like, you know, refer to them as LS swaps in the business. Uh, but essentially taking a uh, late model GM engine and transmission combinations and putting them in older cars to make them, to make them more drivable, more user friendly, um, something you could get in and go across country. And that really, that's, I think the, the thing that people don't understand, you know, for, and I drove old cars forever. I mean, when I was in high school, I was driving, you know, the newest car I owned was like a 72 or 73 model, uh, Mustang. <clears throat> and, uh, Everything else was, you know, all 60s, 50s and 60s related stuff. Um, but it's one thing if you're driving that car for short distances, if you're commuting, you know, 5, 10, 12, 15 miles in a day, uh, as opposed to having to take that on a, a commute or, you know, like a, a real drive every day where if you lived in, so we'll say you lived in a place like Houston, where it may take you an hour and a half to get to your job or home from your job. It's not really practical to try to drive, you know, a We'll, we'll just pull something out of the air. I do a lot of Lincolns. We'll say a, a 63 Lincoln, you know, you're going to drive that every day, uh, especially in, you know, the summertime with expect the AC to work and to give you some creature comforts. Um, those cars just weren't built for that. Uh, they were built at a time where, you know, the interstate system was much different than it is now. The freeway system is much different. Um, people didn't, didn't commute as far, um, didn't have to go as far for their jobs. Typically they lived close to wherever they worked at. <clears throat> um, same thing with European vehicles. You know, a lot of times people buy old Euro cars and expect them to be, you know, indestructible when in reality they're more fragile than the, than their domestic counterparts that were built at the same time because European cars definitely weren't meant to be, uh, a long, a long haul traveler type car, um, uh, truly a grand touring type car. If you think about, you know, older Jags and, um, Land Rovers and, and, um, if you got into the Italian stuff, you know, to a degree, we didn't really see a lot of, you know, Ferraris are, are very, very small batch cars, Lamborghinis, same way. But if you look back like Maserati, they made a bi-turbo, 
uh, in the eighties. That was kind of a eh, kind of a shady car. That car is not meant to be driven every day. Um, a lot of the older Mercedes, you know, you really have to stay up on, on maintenance on those cars. Um, if you're going to daily drive them to the degree that we daily drive stuff now. Um, so that's the reason we do a lot of these swaps now where we put, you know, newer engine transmission combinations into an older vehicle. That way you get the best of both worlds. You get the, the, um, the look and the, the distinction of the old car along with the reliability and the power uh, of the newer cars. You know, everybody wants, of course, air conditioning and and uh, all the creature comforts, push-button start, power windows, power locks, you know, navigation, um, heads-up display, you know, the, all that stuff's uh, paramount now. And, you know, even as technically advanced as some of the luxury cars were in the 60s, um, they didn't have items like that. I mean, like, if you had, uh, you know, auto-dimming headlights, that was a big deal. Um, and then, you know, power seats. You had some cars, like Chrysler was famous for having a seat that would actually rotate or, or swivel. Um, and they had a couple of Imperials that actually had an option where the passenger front seat swiveled around. And the rear seat on the passenger side had a desk and a lamp that came out of it. So they call that a, a producer's option uh, on Imperials for a while, which was kind of cool. But, I mean, you know, outside of that... You know, not near what we see now with heated and cooled seats and, you know, vibrating seats. And I think the new, one of the selling points for the new Navigator, in fact, if you uh, if you check out some of their uh, sales propaganda, a new Lincoln Navigator has a seat that has, or the front seats have, oh, I want to say it's like 40-something different ways of adjustment. You know, it's like a 40-way power seat. So, but really all you're looking at there is just, you know, more complicated stuff, more stuff to fail uh, over time. And that's what, that's what really makes those cars, you know, lose their value so quickly is they, all those gadgets start failing and quit working. And then people, you know, are not going to pay for that in the used car field. So anyway, um, you know, we'll cover a lot of car stuff on this, uh, on this, uh, this uh, podcast of mine. We'll talk about, you know, whatever you want to talk about. Um, if you've got ideas, Feel free to send me those uh, or questions. Uh, you can send those to me via my Facebook page. Uh, you can also email me if you want to. Um, my email is Dr. Dr. Uh, or the abbreviation for doctor, underscore, and then horsepower uh, at msn.com. Feel free to, you know, send me what your thoughts are on the, on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, if you got any questions, like I said, we'll you know, be glad to cover those in future episodes. Um, I've been watching a lot of, uh, uh, a YouTube channel called, uh, VinWiki, uh, that a fellow out of Atlanta started and, uh, he, you know, started off as a, essentially a, uh, just an exotic car aficionado and, you know, worked his way up, uh, into, uh, uh, a sales management position at a Lamborghini dealer in Atlanta and then, um, had springboarded off of that into, you know, selling exotics on his own. Um, he also, at different times, has held the the uh, cannonball, uh, the cannonball run record. Uh, which, and for those of you that don't know, there actually is a real cannonball run record that uh, is a um, essentially a coast to coast timed event. And uh, these guys are, I mean, they're doing some insane, insane uh, runs. Uh, in fact, I think 
somebody just broke that record here. I want to say back maybe in February. Uh, but now it's just a little over a 24-hour, I think 26 hours and some change or 27 hours and some change to go from from essentially New York to to San Diego uh, or L.A. I can't remember which one they stop in now. But um, anyway, pretty impressive stuff. Um, and that show's really cool. If you get a chance to, to jump on YouTube and check that out, uh, Vin Wiki, his idea originally was um, to start essentially a, a vehicle identification number database for exotic cars. That way, if people were in the market and they were looking for a specific exotic Lamborghini, Ferrari, uh, Maybach, Pagani, uh, whatever, uh, they could go on there and see if the car they were looking at had previous owners that were registered. That way they could find out the true history on the car <clears throat> before they went out and spent a bunch, bunch of cash on it. So, um, and it's helped definitely in that market. You know, there's a lot of fraud going on. Uh, people trying to misrepresent cars, cars, cars that have a provenance, uh, in the, in the, uh, auction world. What that means is if it, the car's got a history, um, if it belonged to somebody that was famous or it was built specifically for someone that was famous. Um, then those cars typically will carry a greater premium in the auction world because of that provenance. So if I've got two, say I've got two Mercedes 300 SL Gold Wings, and I've got one that was driven by um, James Dean and one that was driven by, you know, uh, Aunt Gertie down the street, then the one that's got James Dean's, uh, quote, DNA on the inside of it is going to be worth more money because, Obviously, it's touched the touched the hands of James Dean now. Um, that's just an example I'm throwing out there, but that definitely does hold water when you start looking at the at the auction community, uh, which brings brings me to a point. Um, so many times, uh, you know, you hear people. At least I do because I'm I'm constantly valuing cars. You hear people talk about the value they've seen when they watch a, a, a car auction on TV, like Barrett Jackson or Meekum or you know, any of the handful of car auctions that will pop up and really Barrett Jackson and Meekum are probably the two most well-known, um, because of their TV presence. Um, those in many cases are inflated values on those cars. Um, and they're inflated for a couple of reasons. A lot of times it's charity based. Um, if somebody donates a car like a Jay Leno or Hulk Hogan or whoever donates a car and they know the proceeds are going to a charity, uh, we'll say Ford does a lot of work with uh, juvenile diabetes, and uh, that's a good example. So Ford's got the very f the first serial number zero 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 one of a new Shelby or something they're bringing out. Well, they take it to an auction like Barrett Jackson, and they say, "Okay, we're going to donate you know all the proceeds from this car to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation (JDRF." And um, that winds up driving the price up on the car. You know, the sticker on that car may be, we'll say it's seventy or eighty thousand dollars, but they may pull three, four, five hundred thousand dollars off the car because, again, it's tied to a charity, and that's the reason people are bidding the car up. Uh, but you know, the average car that goes through there, uh, a lot of times we'll see an inflated value based on, again, if you've got shill bidders in the audience that are trying to drive the bid up. You got somebody that thinks it's worth a lot more than it is, and they want to hold out on a reserve type scenario. Um, for those of you that don't know, in, in the car auction world, a reserve means I take a car to sell 
and I put, just like an eBay auction, I put a minimum amount that I'm willing to take for the car. Now, once the car reaches the reserve, then it's a free-for-all. I mean, you know, the, the, the last person standing, essentially, once it touches the reserve, uh, wins the car at the, at the end of the auction. Now, I also, you see people that will, they'll bid a car up and then the car's not pulling the money they think it should. Uh, the audience is down. There's just not a buyer in the crowd, whatever. They'll take the reserve off, uh, at many times at the request of the auction house. And they'll try to drive the price up with that because then once the reserve's off, the people know that whoever the highest bidder is is going to win it. So now you may draw people out to bid that previously weren't bidding on the cars. And so that's a lot of times how the, how the prices jump on those things. But, you know, in the business, we all laugh because there's so many cars that show up to auctions that are just garbage. I mean, just horribly built cars or cars that were built um, in a hurry uh, trying to make it to an auction. Uh, a lot of times you'll see that, that effort on TV um, and some of your favorite uh, TV car builder shows. Um, we're not going to be afraid to name names here. I know just about everybody in the business at this point in time. And, and so, you know, if there, if there's trash out there or garbage out there, I'm going to not be afraid to call guys out, but there are cars that are built uh, in a hurry specifically for some auction and then once you really start looking at the car, you realize what a piece of trash it is. And it's because, you know, cut corners were cut just to make an auction. Um, but many times those cars will sell at a premium because it's attached to a TV show or a name. Um, there are lots of places like that in Dallas. Uh, so and that's, you know, where I'm based at right now. So you see that on quite a regular basis. And uh, it's unfortunate because uh, it really, you know, it... it it waters down the it waters down the real business and waters down the market for sure. Um, and I've seen many of those cars that you know barely made it up on the stage and off the stage. They look like a million bucks until you start really dissecting them and get underneath them and under the hood and and you start seeing how poor the wiring is, you know how how shoddy the assembly is, um, you know how bad the paint really is, um, and back. When I first opened my when I opened my first shop in Houston, which would have been 2001, um, back then that was kind of when overhauling it first really kicked off, and I used to make jokes about that because people would call me expecting to get a car completely done, you know, nut and bolt, you know, body off, you know, full car build in you know a week or two's time, and they couldn't understand why I would tell them, oh, that's going to be it may take us a year to build that car or nine months to build that car, depending on parts availability. Well, they all they're seeing is what they see on TV. You know, they, they see Chip Foose and his crew, you know, put a car together in a, in a week. Well, yeah, but they've got 60 people working on it. Uh, they're getting all the parts for free and everything's overnighted to them. They don't have to worry about waiting on, you know, a shortage or somebody ran out of stock on something or you don't have to wait on the shipper or whatever. So... Um, they really, really put a, a, a cramp uh, in, you know, the shops that are really doing that work day to day in those original TV shows where they were building cars because it was unrealistic. Timelines are unrealistic. You know, the the build quality is not what you think it is. If you could see some of those car early cars that were built on overhauling up close, you'd realize what pieces of trash they are. Um, 
so a lot of that stuff is smoke and mirrors. Um, I kind of equate it to the um, to the old Wizard of Oz example. You know, it's when you walk in the when you walk in the big uh, the big room, you see the the great and powerful Oz on the screen, but you know, don't pay attention to the little guy behind the curtain that's actually pulling the levers and and you know making the fire come out of the the corners of the the stage. Um, and that's really truly the case. You know, what you see is not always what's underneath. Um, uh, one of those when you when you get up close to it and get to inspect it. So, um, so that's kind of the world I operate in now. I don't do as much fast car stuff as I used to, but certainly I'm still connected to those guys. Um, I've got some buddies of mine that'll probably be on uh, at different points that are, you know, either in the same business or you know guys I've raced with, guys that are still racing, maybe old students of mine. Um, got one friend of mine that. I taught with at uh, at the engine school there in Houston that he's um, he's actually one of the hosts of one of the Power Block shows um, that's now I guess on I guess that's on uh, Motor Trend and uh, it's hard to keep up with all the different networks once they start buying shows out. Um, one of my favorite shows actually I think is the most realistic when it comes to building cars is uh, actually Counts Customs. Um, so you know counting cars for those of you that don't that don't keep up with the shop names. But anyway, counting cars with Danny Coker out there in Vegas. Um, he builds legit driver cars that, you know, are not <clears throat> overinflated price wise. Um, and his stuff's pretty nice. You know, it's, it's, it's well built. Um, it's not, um, shoddily put together. Uh, Danny's got a super car collection of his own. He's a, he's, he is a true car guy. He likes everything, uh, bikes included. Um, and just, you know, good all around dude. So, um, don't think that I'm shooting all those shows down. It's just that a lot of them are, you know, it's reality TV allegedly. Uh, but trust that none of that stuff really works like that when you're building a car in the real world. Um, and you know, if, if you pay close attention to some of those shows, you'll see cars that supposedly had sold, uh, you know, two or three seasons ago or five or six seasons ago, but yet they're still lingering in the background of current of current episode. And it's like, well, how is that? If they sold that car to somebody, well, chances are they didn't sell it to anybody or they wound up getting it back. So that's how that stuff happens. So again, just, you know, be, be wary of the smoke and mirrors that goes on with those TV shows when you're watching car shows. Now I can't speak to anything else because I don't have any experience with it, but certainly the car show stuff, um, it kind of hurts the business on the whole. Uh, I, in my opinion, I mean, it, it, it sets up unrealistic expectations for the for the average public, um, and it also makes people think that these some of these guys are are uh, you know geniuses when it comes to building a car. And in reality, they don't know anything about cars, and they just hire the right people to help them uh, in the shop and make them look good. But those people don't get any credit for it, um, and it's 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 unfortunate really that those those guys that are really doing the work don't get the credit for for the work that they do. Um, so. That's probably an unpopular opinion, you know, for me saying it, but I really don't give a damn. I've been in the game long enough that psh, it, you're not going to do anything to me. So um, I am who I am, and, and my business ain't going to stop because, you know, XYZ from some TV show doesn't like me or doesn't like what I said. I, I, could, I could give a damn. Um, anyway, so um, that's kind of the car thing. Uh, you know, there's... And there's a lot of cool stuff that that is normally going on this time of year that we're missing out on. Um, some of my favorite shows happen this time of year. In fact, we just missed uh, Lone Star Roundup here in, in Texas. That's a, a show in Austin that, gosh, I guess it's probably in its uh, 
I don't know if this would have been like the 17th year or the 18th year of it. I can't remember which one. Um, anyway, it's a, it, that's a, a huge show for uh, pre-63 cars. Um, so you get a lot of, of, uh, a lot of traditional hot rods, you know, old stuff, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, on up into the early 60s. And uh, that's a man. It's a really, really good show. Um, showcases a lot of the uh, a lot of the Texas builders uh, for certain. Um, they do a big big cruise night, a couple of nights there in Austin on Congress Avenue. So that's a fun deal. Getting to see all the old cars run up and down. Um, you know, they do a lot of shop tours. Uh, obviously, the music scene in Austin is great. Um, so there's a a, a ton of of uh, social activity that goes on certainly with that show and uh it's unfortunate that 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 one got canceled for this year um i think they tried to i think they did move the date so i think now um it's still supposed to go off but i think it's going to be in september sometime so um i need to look and see if that truly is the case if they did make that happen or not now there's also another show in september in dallas it's called the invasion they do that in deep ellum it's a one-day show uh, really good, really good show. Same concept, you know, pre-63 stuff. Uh, or that one maybe pre-64. But anyway, um, a lot of good cars, um, you know, in a in an older part of Dallas that's, you know, it's all bars and restaurants and eclectic little shops. Uh, so they park the cars right on the street and, you know, people walk around them and check them out and, and uh, can get up close to them, take pictures and whatnot. So that's a, that's a really good show. Um, Probably the last one I guess that got to that got to go off before all the quarantine stuff was gonna was the Lone Star Throwdown, which um, that's a big truck show that takes place in Conroe um, at the fairgrounds every year, and that was a big they had a big turnout for that. And of course, I think that was really the week before the before the uh, before the Corona hit. Uh, and, you know, we started shutting things down and, you know, lim- well, the quarantine or, you know, limiting travel as it were. So, uh, man, we're missing out on a bunch of shows right now. There's, you know, a bunch of stuff got canceled and moved around or, you know, it may not even pop back up, uh, until next year. So it's unfortunate, but, um, I think we're going to make it through and I think there's going to be, you know, still some good activity coming up for the summer. Uh, a really good buddy of mine, um, Runs Texas Show Promoters. His name is Jason. Uh, he has a, this will be the, gosh, I guess the third year now uh, for an event um, that's called uh, Slam. Um, and it's um, the largest single day car show, uh, I think, in the world, maybe. I know for sure in the United States. Uh, the very first year, uh, I ran the, the burnout pit for him at that deal. And I think he had 3,500 cars, 3,600 cars, something like that. Um, so they're going to do that again this year, um, at Texas Motor Speedway. It's coming up. That show was supposed to be in May, but I think they moved it to June now. Um, so it should be outside of the, outside of the, uh, uh, back to normal, uh, you know, return to, return to normal, uh, dates that we have imposed upon us right now. Uh, I haven't really spoken to Jason about that, but I'll try to get him on the show too and, and, uh, let him talk about what he does as far as show promotions go across the state. Um, Texas is, is pretty ripe as far as car shows go. A lot of big shows. Um, and, you know, they're spread out throughout the year. Um, lots of truck shows. That's a, that's a huge and hot market right now. Specifically Chevrolet stuff. Um, anything, you know, 60 to 66 is, is not as popular probably as 
the 67 to 72, then of course the 73 through 87 stuff, the square body crowd. Uh, those guys are, man, they're off the chain. Uh, you know, what used to be a, a four or $500 truck that you could buy out of somebody's backyard is now, you know, a, a $4,500 rust bucket that doesn't run just because it's, you know, it's the bones or the skeleton of what could be, you know, one of these really, really nice patinaed trucks. Um, and you'll hear the, the term patina kicked around too. That just means that, you know, it's original paint, original interior. In many cases, they're trying to capture that look. Um, and I've, I've had a few of those trucks, um, really like them. They're cool. I like the concept. I like the idea. Um, and you know, trucks are huge. They're always going to be huge. So, uh, that'll be another market that, that, uh, that you'll see, I think won't taper off. I don't think it's going to be like custom bikes were like, you know, the bikes were a flash in the pan for a while, you know, hundred thousand dollar bikes, $150,000 bikes when, you know, Jesse James had his show and American Chopper was on and Biker Build-Off was going on and, and you know, that all kind of died off. It, it lived its 15 minutes of fame and then moved on. Um, you know, even Jesse, to a degree, has moved on. He's not really, he still builds bikes, but he concentrates more on his, his uh, custom gun business than anything else now, I think. Um, and, you know, coming back around to the bikes, though, I think guys now are still building. I saw a special the other day that had a bunch of dudes in Arizona, I guess. They've had several big bike builders from uh, other places have now relocated to Phoenix and are trying to build bikes there. Obviously, it's, you know, the weather's conducive to it. It's, I mean, it's hot as hell, but, you know, it's no rain, no rust. Um, sunny most of the time. You're close to California. You're close to Vegas. So you pull that crowd in. And one of the original custom builders back in the day um, that really started that whole revolution like late 90s early 2000s a guy named Paul Yaffe Yaffe's based out of Arizona so that's that's the reason they're kind of doing that thing I think or that's where the revival is starting anyway um, but you know that's there's still a, a, a lucrative section of of the game there too custom bikes still a ton of people that that ride them that still want them the money's not there like it used to be. You're not you're not seeing guys, you know, a hundred thousand dollar bike's really kind of the upper end of the scale. Where uh, I know at one time I think Jesse James was getting two hundred grand for a bike, and you know there was probably a three year waiting list for that. And there was a you know a ton of dudes. Uh, Paul Borget was building some crazy, uh, not Paul Borget, um, I think his name Steve Borget uh, out of Arizona as well was building some crazy, like, futuristic-looking bikes that were, you know, $200,000. Um, and that stuff's, you know, like I said, it hasn't gone away completely, but it's certainly not as popular as it once was. But we'll talk about that stuff, too. Um, I've got a, a, a foot um, in that business. I've got a good friend of mine that I grew up with that um, he has had a limited pro-stock bike uh, racing career. He's he's uh, He actually just interviewed on uh, the uh, NHRA Facebook Live uh, show the other day. Uh, they're going through the pro stock bike uh, riders. Uh, of course, their season's been kind of screwed up with the with the uh, quarantine situation, also. But he is hopefully getting a, a ride on a fast bike coming up. Um, I mentioned in that first that first episode uh, that I've got another friend of mine that I've had for twenty years. That's that's uh, pretty famous in his own right in the pro stock bike world. Um, and you know, he's got a big shop there in Georgia. Well, my buddy that's here in Texas, he's running with some guys, uh, out of, uh, North Carolina. And, uh, I think he's going to have a, a real good, a real good shot at, at, at getting out there and, and making some events and, uh, hopefully, you know, furthering his career, 
uh, as a bike rider. He's he's a guy I graduated with, um, super nice guy, um, and he he'll be. I'll try to have him on here too, and we can talk about bikes and talk about the racing side of it. And uh, hopefully, I'll get to do. Uh, he's asked me to give him a hand with that and <clears throat> help him do some tuning work on those bikes. So um, looking forward to getting some of that uh, exposure as well here in the in the months to come. But um, I think I'm going to pull the plug on on this episode for now. Um, you know, kind of still trying to get my feet wet and get my groove right. Um, had some good positive feedback so far on the on the first episode. Glad you guys liked it, and uh, we're going to keep keep churning it out this is uh this is just like talking from you know talking from my tailgate or talking from the inside of my truck or talking from uh from the the couch or the or the recliner uh, i feel like i'm uh, in touch with with uh, my audience and hopefully you guys are enjoying uh our topics of discussion like i said if you've got uh anything you want to ask me or any topics that you want to to hear me talk about uh feel free to email me again that's dr as in doctor, the abbreviation, uh, underscore horsepower at msn.com. Uh, you can email me there. I'll be glad to, to uh, go through those and, and try to answer any questions you might have or at least get the topics going and get some discussion started on it. And we'll start having some live guests here uh, directly as well. So look forward to more, uh, more discussion with you guys and uh, more activity. Everybody stay safe. Uh, there's a lot of places, I think, that are going to mandatory uh, masks or facial coverings this weekend, I know. So if you're in one of those areas, make sure that you, you take care of that. And uh, hopefully we'll all come out of the other side of this thing uh, in a better position and with a better respect for our fellow man. Talk to you soon. Out.